1: of Your Life is Worth Living, heard on Radio Maria Canada. And uh, boy, it is great to be alive, and it is great to continue to be fed by the Word of God. But uh, what's beautiful is that Bishop Sheen interprets the Word of God for us. He makes the Scriptures come alive. And so today, Bishop Sheen will share two lessons with us. Uh, He's going to give us an economics lesson And I know many of us need help with money, understanding, you know, goods and services, understanding how to balance a budget, but uh, Bishop Sheen, back in the 1950s, knew what we were thinking, and uh, so he's going to share his lesson on economics today. Uh, And then we'll continue, of course, with his catechism series, where he'll be talking about the effects of original sin. And so please stay tuned with us today and enjoy this hour of reflection. Uh, So let's begin with prayer. I love praying for the intercession of the saints, and as many of you know, uh, Bishop Sheen's uh, cause is uh, before uh, the Vatican to uh, help him, of course, one day become declared a saint. Uh, He has, at the time of this recording, has been declared venerable, uh, which is worthy of... um, (laughs) I have to get my uh, dictionary out again, the word venerable, but let's just say the Church has recognized him as... uh, Everything is pre-approved. Uh, he is to be revered. And uh, so, again, you can trust Bishop Sheen's writings, his teachings. Uh, take that to the bank. And so we love to pray for his intercession. And so uh, we're going to pray for a spiritual favor. Uh, so everyone knows what uh, things they like to be have their prayers answered. And we'll ask Bishop Sheen uh, for help today. So please join me. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Eternal Father, you alone grant us every blessing in heaven and on earth through the redemptive mission of your divine Son, Jesus Christ, and by the working of the Holy Spirit. If it be according to your will, glorify your servant Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen by granting the favor I now request through his his prayerful intercession. And here let us mention our request. And we make this prayer confidently through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady, Seed of Wisdom, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please enjoy now this reflection on economics by the venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen.
2: Friends, I understand that last week in a Philadelphia home an arrangement was made whereby the little girl said to the mother, I will be quiet while you listen to Bishop Sheen and you be quiet while I listen to Hopalong Cassidy. (laughs) I think the way it's going to turn out is the mother's going to be very fond of Hopalong Cassidy. <laughs> well, as we announced last week, our subject tonight is economic. We might just as well plunge right into it, like the golfer that was on a course, and he said to some other golfers, he said, Do you mind if I play through? I just heard my wife is seriously ill. An economist has been described as one who reads a menu from right to left. <laughs> he is also one who has a 5 Beta Kappa key on his watch chain, but no watch. <laughs> really, the science of economics today is, for the most part, a science of description. It merely tells us how economic processes such as Consumption and production and exchange take place. But economics rarely has principles outside of itself, whereby we may judge economics. That is one of the reasons why it is difficult to tell which system of economics is right, the communist or the economics of our Western world. I once heard of a play of, read it a play of Chesterton's called Magic, in which there was a duke who was asked to write two checks. Or he actually wrote two checks. One was to build a saloon. The other was to aid the league that was trying to prevent the building of the saloon. And do you know that he became known in the community as a very liberal-minded man? (laughs) He had no principles by which to judge economic processes. So lesson number one in economics begins with this simple notion. Economics is concerned with the science of having. All having is necessary to us because of our creatureliness. We must have in order to complement our imperfection. Because we do not have perfect life, we have to have food. Because we do not have perfect truth within ourselves, we have to have schools and education. Even because... Our hearts are rather imperfect. We have to have love to complement that imperfection. When God created the world, having came into the world. Up until then, when there was only God, there was just being, but no having. God has nothing. Therefore, he's infinitely poor. But God is everything. Therefore, he is infinitely rich. All having is something extrinsic to ourselves with the mere fact that it complements us. And hence, anything that we may have in the way of property is something that we actually could lose. And it's very easy for people to confuse having something and being something. Because they have things of value, they think, therefore, they themselves must have value does not necessarily follow. A woman who has a tremendous amount of clothes but never enough closets may think that she really is somebody because she's a clothes horse.
3: <laughs> Say,
2: incidentally, why do they call woman a clothes horse? I've never been able to figure that out. Is it because she's always nagging her husband? concerned with property. Now property is of two kinds. Property may be either real property or it may be token property. Real property, chalk, cabbages, spinach, ice cream, beds, land, Token property is an artifice or a symbol that stands for real wealth. Stocks, bonds, credit, money that has been folded, and money that has not been folded. (laughs) There is a natural limit to all real wealth. That is to say... A man, for example, does not want an infinite suit of clothes. There isn't anybody that wants his bedroom just chock full of beds, unless he's fond of a lot of bunk. (laughs) Real wealth, because it is physical and concrete, sets limits to oneself and to what we can consume even in a farm, to what one can produce. Uh, in Australia, uh, there were some primitive people who could count only up to three, and they used to count one, two, three, enough. And why? Simply because they killed three birds. Well, that was all they could consume in a day. They had no admiral refrigerator. <laughs> I said they were primitive people. On the contrary, why I might say as regards real wealth, that is why agriculture is one of the very natural avocations of man, is because nature sets limits to what will be produced, as man's own nature sets limits to what will be consumed. But token wealth, that can be infinite. We can just have a chain of hotels, more and more of this, and that even applies to communists. Because remember, a communist has envy of token wealth. A communist is an involuntary poor man. He's a rich man without any money in his pocket. He's a poor man who wants to be rich. And this desire for more and more and more has actually become a kind of an American God. A false God, token wealth, can be infinite and therefore take the place of the true God. Remember when our blessed Lord multiplied the loaves and the fishes fed the five thousand. The gospel says each man had as much as he would. Each man had his fill. Why? Because there was a natural limit to well, the number of loaves of bread he could eat and to the fish he could eat. But suppose that our blessed Lord went around and distributed $10,000 war bonds. Can you imagine any one of those thousand, five thousand saying, That's enough, O oh Lord, no more just one. we come to the basic principle of property, which applies to both real and token property. The right to property is personal. The use of property is socially conditioned. These two principles must never be separate. The right is personal. Man must have private property because a man can work better on that which is his own than on that which belongs to someone else. Painter can certainly paint better on his own canvas. Farmer works better on his own land than on someone else's. Just think of the condition of clothing in Soviet Russia, where the state makes all the pants and all the vests and all the coats. No wonder Malenkov's suits fit the way they do. <laughs> I bet Malenkov would like to be Malik and get over here where he could get some good American tailoring. <laughs> the right to property is personal, but the use of property, is socially conditioned though we may own it nevertheless we may not do with it whatever we please for example i have a horse
3: <laughs>
2: you know if i if i just get a little worse i can have one of my drawings in the modern art museum I have a horse. Now, may I use that horse as I please? Over here is a is a garden. And these are vegetables. That's a cabbage head. Though I can show title to my horse, may I use my horse as I please? May I send it over to your garden and eat your vegetables? Certainly may not. My personal rights to property are limited by society. I may have a wine cellar at the bottle. Here's the school. School. (laughs) May I invite all of the children over to my wine cellar and put them in a state of amiable (laughs) incandescent? The the wine cellar might be mine, but I may not use it as I please. A girl has a shotgun. Can she use the shotgun as she pleases? Can't get a man with a gun. (laughs) You can immediately see that there are two possible errors that can creep into economics. One would be the error of saying we insist upon personal rights to the exclusion of social use. What would that be? That would be monopolistic capitalism, so prevalent in the last century, in which the capitalists said, I own this property, I want no church, I want no Bible, I want no moral law, I want no state, I want no society telling me what I can do with my money. And that resulted in the concentration of wealth in the hands of the few, the impoverishment of the masses, a system to a great extent that was broken up, thanks be to God, rightly for the advent of labor unions. But that could be the error insisting on the right for getting the use. And the other air of insisting on the social use and forgetting the personal rights is obviously communism, in which all property belongs to the state and a man has no personal rights whatever. Then the state owns all the chickens, all the eggs, all of the hens, and it has a state cook that makes an omelette, and you eat the omelette whether you like your eggs that way or not. (laughs) These are the two economic systems that are both wrong simply because they violated a basic principle of property. Now we come to the application of some of our principles. In the first application... Has to do with individuals. Every individual is entitled to personal property, to returns on that property. He is entitled to enough personal property to care for himself, for his family, to give them security for the future as well as. And education. All that is over and above that, in the truest sense of the term, wealth that is superfluous, he owes to the poor. He cannot say The personal pronoun, mine. In the same way, the bed on which he sleeps, as he can say, mine, of his second yacht. His right diminishes as it gets to superfluity, and social needs then begin to emphasize themselves. Now, well, that incidentally is why, on a program such as this, every single cent that I receive, I give to the poor. We're of Asia, we're of Africa, we're of Oceania. Do not keep one single cent for personal expenses. My angel doesn't get anything. <laughs> he doesn't even get his, his union views. You know why? He doesn't belong to a union. He has no body. He couldn't even wear a union suit. (laughs) Now all of this money goes to care, as we cared last year, for 65 million people. Age of six, lepers, 95% of whom, incidentally, were non-Christians. I'm not entitled to that superfluity if God has given me a gift. The gift of proclaiming his truth and the other gifts that are related to it and the opportunity of talking to you on television, I may not use those God-given rights just in order that I may increase wealth. I owe that to someone else and if I use that for myself, God would take away my gifts. Why, if you sent me a dime for my work, Hey, that's not a bad idea. <laughs> Will you? <laughs> Don't ask for return, then it, we won't have an overhead of a stamp. <laughs> Thanks.
3: I'd love you. All right.
2: Now, the second principle The head of an industry. He is entitled again to all that is necessary for himself, for his family, for their security, and for his station in life. Then what about the superfluity? He may use that superfluity to pour it back again into his business in order to increase employment and aid the social good. That man is then doing a work of munificence and liberality, and is to be praised for it. Then we come to our third application. Third application is to a corporation. Because many of the corporations of today are made up of both real and token property. When one speaks of property, one cannot anymore just speak of individual property. These tremendous industrial organizations are part of our modern life, and we do not wish to have them destroyed. The problem is, apply the basic principles of property to those who are linked up with corporations. First of all, any man who has stock in a corporation is entitled to returns on that stock. It is rightfully and lawfully his. He is aided in the organization by giving money capital and in entitled to return. How about the worker? The worker does not give any cash, but he gives something more. He gives his life. Not just this day's work and that day's work for which he receives away the sum of all of the days, the rearing of his family, the beginning and the end of his physical existence. He is also entitled to some part of the social wealth which he helps to create, just as the stockholder is entitled to something. Therefore, there ought to be in corporations some form of co-ownership in which a worker would receive some part of the profits which he has helped to produce. Certainly the man who gave money and who clips coupons is entitled to his, but the worker also is entitled to some share in that wealth. need not be given in the form of stock alone, but at any rate, some form of co-management some form of co-ownership in which the bond will deepen between himself and the industry where he works, in which he will feel some stability, in which he will no longer be working for someone, but in which he will be working with someone. No one class is entitled to take all of the profit. And this, this plan here Will these stockholders like it? No, not all the stockholders will like it because they will say, I will not be able to use my scissors. I will not get all the returns that I would like on my money. They may get more simply because the workers will be then working on something that is their own. Will the labor leaders like the plan? No, not all of them because they would lose some of their privileged position. And unfortunately, Some of the labor leaders are interested only in extracting increased purchasing power from industry instead of giving some form of co-ownership to the workers. And certainly certainly, the Marxists will not like it either because they want to take over the whole interest so that neither capital nor labor will have a share. Believe me, a man is free in the inside because he has an immortal soul. He can say, I am my own. No man is free on the outside because he can call property his own. He can say, this is my own. History reveals that never has there been any tyranny, never has there been any slavery in a country where there has been a wide distribution of property. But wherever you find a refusal to allow a man to own or co-own the things on which he works, As you find, for example, in the Soviet Union, there you find tyranny, there you find despotism, there you find slavery. Wherever there is property, there is power. Wherever there is property, there is a sense of responsibility. Hence what we would like to see is a great wider diffusion of property so that a man will own his own home. A man will own in some way, at least, Co-own the place where he works. He can have a responsibility, therefore, for that industry and feel himself free We be set on the inside because he has an immortal soul and free on the outside simply because he is responsible in the place where he works. This is freedom. This is responsibility. This is democracy.
1: Our sincere thanks to the Fulton J. Sheen Company who has given us permission to share these broadcasts with you today. I invite you to make Bishop Sheen a part of your family audio and video collection. You can call them toll-free at 1-866-357-4336 or visit the official website for purchasing Catholic Family Videos and DVDs of Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen's recordings from the Catholic television series, Life is Worth Living. The web address is www.bishopsheen.com. You will find rare collections of Catholic family video recordings addressing a variety of topics, such as morality, Mary the Mother of God, angels, Catholic Holy Days, and other faith-based subjects. So call toll-free today, 1-866-357-4336. Again, 1-866-357-4336. And on the web, www.bishopsheen.com. And on behalf of Bishop Sheen, God love you.
0: You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. Hello,
1: Radio Maria family, and welcome to another edition of Your Life is Worth Living. I hope you enjoyed that reflection from Bishop Sheen about economics. You could see he had a great love for the worker, uh, for justice in the workplace, sharing of the wealth, uh, fair wages, uh, all these things, good working conditions. Uh, he was really being an ambassador to so many people because uh, he knew that people were working hard for their money. He knew there was abuses in society that people were being being taken advantage of. And so he was an advocate for them. So uh, let us put into practice a little bit of what we learned today through that lesson. And so now I want to focus your energies onto the catechism side of our program where Bishop Sheen will teach us the faith, and so we're on lesson number 23 of 50, and uh, this lesson is on the effects of original sin. Please enjoy.
2: Peace be to you. Already there is a background about original sin. In this lesson, we are concerned with how it affects us. In other words, it's very practical application. Everyone is tremendously interested in psychology. We try to understand ourselves. We search the reasons of why we tick. We probe and analyze our anxieties and our conflicts. Some of us wonder why we are run down another's why we are wound up now there are many explanations of all of these conflicts within us but original sin alone gives us the basic understanding of human nature no one can understand psychology unless he understands human nature no one can understand human nature unless he understands original sin. Somehow or other, the abuse that has happened to our mind or that has come to our mind has been due in some way to human freedom. Do we not feel like a radio that's tuned into two stations? We get nothing but static. We're tuned into heaven, we're tuned into hell. Ovid, the Latin poet, described it very well. He said, I see and I approve the better things of life, the worst things of life I follow. St. Paul also described our inner psychology when he wrote the good which I will to do, that I do not, and the evil which I will not, that I do We feel dual, pulled in two different directions, as if we were a team of horses. One horse was going to the right and the other horse was going to the left. Our soul is like a battlefield in which a civil war is being waged. We feel split almost into many worlds. Some of us may even feel like the young man out of whom our Lord drove the devil. Our Lord said to the devil, What is your name? The devil answered, My name is Legion, for we are many. Notice the conflict between my and we. He was one. He was multiple. Even the best of us feel as if we are mountain climbers. We can see the summit and the peak toward which we are striving up above us. And then we look back and we see the abyss into which we might fall. Above is what we ought to be and below is what we can become. As a poet has put it, within my earthly temple there's a crowd. There's one of us that's humble, one that's proud. There's one that's broken-hearted for his sins and one who unrepentant sits and grins. There's one who loves his neighbor as himself and one who cares for naught but fame and pelf. From much corroding care I should be free if once I could determine which is me. Now, there are explanations that are given for this conflict within us. They are true to some extent, but actually they're only partial. These false explanations can be reduced to three. One is psychological, the other is biological, and the other is economic. Uh, They are, I should not say, altogether false. They are just partial explanations. The partial explanation is the psychological. It tries to find out What has happened personally to us in the past? Some will say the reason we have uh, this particular psychosis is because we were frightened when we were locked in a closet one day because we were bad. Or else because our parents scolded us when we tried to manifest our interest in a particular kind of pleasure. And conceivably it Might have been sex. In other words, whatever is wrong with us has a personal background. Therefore, in order to be cured of our difficulty, there must be an analysis of our subconscious mind. And if we can bring out of the subconscious mind the source of this personal conflict, we will be cured. Now, this explanation has some merit in it, but it is only a partial accounting for the way we are. It is wrong inasmuch as it assumes that if we are to find the source of the difficulty of any particular person, we need to go into that person's background. No, everybody has a conflict. It is not just our personality and our psychological background that is wrong, something has happened to our nature. Do not think that simply because you have a temptation that there's something wrong with you. And do not believe either that you have a monopoly on temptation. Everyone has temptations. Everyone in the world You alone are not queer. Everybody is queer. If therefore we are to find the ultimate explanation, we must get beyond the person we've got to get back to human nature. Something has happened to us, whatever it is, and it has affected every single human being in the world. Another partial explanation, and false because it is partial, is the biological. This assumes that we are the way we are because there was a fall somewhere in the evolutionary process. And we all have the traces of our animal origin. Now, this is hardly the explanation because... Animals left to themselves never have any anxieties. They may have natural fears, but they have no subjective anxieties in the strict sense of the word. A pig has no neurosis. Birds do not develop a psychosis about whether they will take a winter trip to California or to Florida. An animal never becomes less than it is. But a man can. And the reason is, he is a composite of both spirit and matter. If we are to find a total explanation of what is wrong with man, it must be sought within man himself. When we see a monkey acting crazily in a zoo, we do not say it. Oh, do not act like a nut. But When we see a man acting foolishly, we say, Don't act like a monkey. See, a monkey cannot get below itself, but man can. Because man is spirit as well as matter, he can descend to the level of beasts. Though never so completely. As to destroy the image of God that is in his soul. It is this possibility that makes the peculiar tragedy of man. Man would never be frustrated, he would never have an anxiety complex if he were an animal and if he were made just for this world. Because of that summit, that peak, that desire for perfect happiness, which he does not attain, that he can become a seat of conflicts. Therefore, the animal in us is not the cause of why we are the way we are. It is something more profound. A third false explanation because it is partial is the economic. Here it is assumed that man has conflicts because he is poor, because of capitalism or because of communism. Is it not a fact Never before has the world had so much wealth and never before has it had so much unhappiness. Never before has it had so much learning. Never before has it had so little coming to the knowledge of the truth. Never before has it had so much power. And never before has it been so bent on the destruction of human life. Economic development is not the total cause of man's derangement. All the rich are not virtuous, all the poor are not sinners. If poverty were the cause of the way we are, then the rich should be paragons of virtue. But the fact is that it is more the overprivileged and the rich who have mental conflicts than it is the poor. Very often, the more one is detached from this world, the more normally. more healthy on the inside. This world of ours has not just made a few mistakes in bookkeeping. Rather, the world has swindled the treasury of morality. And that is the kind of poverty from which we suffer. Somehow or other, we lost Spiritual capital. We are like prodigal sons that have left the father's house. We're feeding on husks. Looking back then on all of these explanations, we have to conclude this, that God certainly did not create us this way. We are fallen. And the facts support this view. There is a voice inside of our moral consciousness that tells us that our immoral and unmoral acts are abnormal. They ought not to be there. There's something wrong in us, something dislocated. God did not make us one way. Or rather, he did make us one way. We've made ourselves, in virtue of our freedom, another way. He wrote the drama, we changed the plot. We are not just animals that fail to evolve into humans. We are humans who have rebelled against the divine. If we are riddles to ourselves we are not to put the blame on God. Nor in evolution we are to put the blame on ourselves. We are not depraved criminals. We are weak. We're not just a mass of corruption. We bear within ourselves the image of God. We're very much like a man was fallen into a well. We ought not to be there, and yet we cannot get out. We are sick. We need healing. We need deliverance. We need liberation. And we know very well that we cannot give this liberation and freedom to ourselves. We are like a fish on top of the Empire State Building. Somehow or other, we are outside of our environment. We cannot swim back into the stream. Someone has to put us back. Now, it is true that God, as we said, has established a law. There will be a moral universe, and a moral universe implies a free universe, and because we are free, we can abuse our freedom. But we are not to blame God for it. When you buy an automobile, you always find with it a set of instructions. The manufacturer tells you the pressure to which you ought to inflate your tires and the kind of oil you ought to put in your crankcase and the kind of gasoline you ought to put in the gas tank. He has nothing against you because he gives you these directions. And God has nothing against us when he gives his commandments. The manufacturer of the automobile really wants to be helpful when he gives us these laws. He wants you to get the maximum utility out of that car. And God is anxious that we get the maximum amount of happiness out of life. And so he said, I will tell you what you should do, what you ought to do. Now, we are free. We can do just as we please. We ought to put gasoline into the tank of our car. But we can put perfume in there. We can put in smell number five. And there's no doubt that it's going to be nicer for our nostrils to fill the tank with perfume than with gasoline. But the car simply will not run on smell number five. In like manner, we were made to run on the fuel of God's love and commandments and we simply will not run on anything else. We just bogged down. Give another example which explains original sin and also the conflicts that are within us. Suppose there was before us an orchestra and there was a distinguished conductor directing that orchestra. There has been a symphony composed. It is well-marked, well-scored. All a musician has to do is to follow it. Now, each member of that orchestra is free to follow the conductor and therefore produce harmony. Suppose one of the musicians in that orchestra deliberately plays a false note and then he jabs the violinist alongside of him and tells him to play another false note. There's discord somewhere. Now, having heard that discord... The director can do one of two things. He can either strike his baton and say, play it over, or he can ignore it. It makes no difference which he does, because that note is already going out into space. At a certain temperature, it's traveling at the rate of about 1,100 feet a second, and on and on it goes, affecting even the infinitesimally small radiation of the universe. Just as a stone dropped in the pond causes a ripple, so too this discord affects even the most distant stars. And as long as time endures, somewhere in God's universe, there is a disharmony introduced by the free will of man. Can that discord be stopped? Not by man himself? For man cannot reach it, Time is irreversible and man is localized in space. Is there any way of stopping the discord? Yes, there is one way and that is if the eternal came out of his eternity into time he might lay hold of that false note seize and arrest it in its mad flight stop it from going any further. But would there still be discord in the universe? There could be harmony introduced on one condition. Namely, if God wrote a new symphony, and made that false note, the first note in the new harmony, then there would be harmony again. Now, a long time ago, God wrote a symphony and asked man and woman to play it, gave a complete set of instructions down to the last detail of what to avoid, Man and woman being free could obey the divine director and produce harmony, or they could disobey and The devil suggested that because the divine director had marked the script and told them what to play and what not to play, that he was destroying their freedom. And they believed him, and they introduced a false note into the universe, and on and on through the human race, this individual and uh, discord continued to sweep And it affected every single human being in the universe with this disharmony. And this discord even had its repercussions in the material universe. Thistles grew. Beasts became wild. Man had earned his bread by the sweat of his brow. Women brought forth their children in sorrow as a stream polluted at its source passes on its pollution through its length. So the original fault was transmitted to all humanity. And that discord could not be stopped by man himself because he could not repair an offense against the infinite with his own finite self. The debt could be paid only by the divine master musician coming out of his eternity into time. But there would be a world of difference between stopping a discordant note and a rebellious man The discordant note has no freedom. Man has. That's where the analogy breaks down. God refuses to be a totalitarian dictator. And therefore, he refuses to abolish freedom by destroying, or rather abolish evil by destroying human freedom. God could seize the note, but he would not seize a man. So instead of conscripting man, God willed to consult humanity again as to whether or not it wanted to be made a member of the divine orchestra once more. And so out from the great white throne of light comes an angel. And it comes to a woman whose name is Mary. And the angel asks Mary, in the name of God, Will you give to God a man? Will you give to God a new note out of humanity with which he can write a new symphony? This new man must be a man otherwise God would not be acting in the name of humanity but he must also be outside of the current of infection to which all men are subject. Being born of a woman he would be a man and being born of a virgin he would be a sinless man. So the virgin was asked if she would consent to be a mother and she gave to God a man. answer was be it done to me according to thy word. Nine months later, the Eternal established its beachhead in Bethlehem as he who is Eternal appeared in time. And his name is Jesus Christ, God and man. He is God, therefore whatever he does has an infinite value. And though this human nature of his is sinless, he makes himself responsible for all the sins of the world. As a rich brother takes upon himself the debt of his bankrupt brother, so our Lord takes upon himself all the discords and harmonies and all the sins and all the guilts and all the blasphemies of man as if he himself were guilty. As gold is thrust into the furnace to have its dross burned away, so he takes that human nature, plunges it into Calvary to have our sins burned away. Or to change the figure, since sin is in the blood, he pours out his blood in redemption. For without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. And then on Easter Sunday, he rises again with his glorified, sinless human nature. And this becomes the first note in the new creation, the beginning of the new symphony, which will be played again and again by the divine conductor. And how are other notes added? We are the other notes if, like Mary, we freely consent to be added to that first note. And how do we become added? We become added by the sacrament of baptism, by which each man dies to the old Adam and incorporates himself to the new Adam, Christ. And all of these notes that are added to this first note constitute the new body of Christ, or what is known as his mystical body, the church. This is what it means to be
0: a Christian. God You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith.
1: Well, Radio Maria family, our hour has come to a close and uh, we have two lessons under our belt and uh, we're the better for it. And so we thank uh, Bishop Sheen for his words of wisdom. And, and I want to thank my good friend Anthony from FultonSheen.com a website where you can purchase quality recordings of uh, the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Uh, there are over uh, or close to 300 recordings. I think it's Changes. It keeps growing every time I visit the site. But let's just say there's hundreds and hundreds of quality recordings, uh, all for pennies. And so, uh, by all means, everyone should have a full Fulton Sheen library. You can download the uh, Fulton Sheen phone app uh, onto your iPhone or Android or uh, tablet. So it is available, and that's absolutely free. And so, again, visit FultonSheen.com for all of your uh, recordings that you need for Bishop Sheen to educate you throughout the day. And so, until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord let His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace.
0: You have been listening to Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith, here on Radio Maria Canada.